Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Empathic Futures Lab, the show about designing human-focused futures for the environments we live in. I'm Chris. And I'm Christian. And before we start, I just want to say I apologize for the long delay between episodes. It's definitely longer than anticipated. Um, but hopefully, you know, now that we got that cleared up, you'll really enjoy our episode today. Um, we got two... Uh, I'm, I'm really excited because we have two guests today. Um, James, who I went... James Addison, who I went to school with. Um, and then his... Um, his thesis partner uh, at MIT, Olivia Huang. So I'll let them say a quick introduction, um, who they are, and uh, I don't know, whatever else they want to add before we jump right into uh, what we want to talk about. Um, I don't know which one of you wants to start. Yeah, so I'm Olivia, um, and James and I just finished our Master's of Architecture at MIT, and I also studied architecture undergrad at Princeton. And as Chris mentioned, I um, was Chris and Christian's classmate at U of I, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign for my undergraduate degree, which is, which is also also in, in architecture. Um, and I think for, for me, I'm, I'm, very, I'm broadly interested in the intersection between architecture, urban design, and, and social justice, uh, which we'll, I think, get into a bit here later in the podcast. All right. Um... All right, so let's just, I think, jump right into it in terms of like, uh, or maybe not jump right into it, but let's get into maybe what Teased led you to, <laughs> yeah, well, what, what led you to um, the, the thesis that you chose in terms of like, what, what's so interesting about architecture to uh, both of you, uh, maybe like what have been the biggest influences, um, mainly because your thesis, uh, which we haven't said anything about it on here yet, but it, it's about I don't know maybe maybe give a quick intro and then talk about what uh, what what were your influences and, and that led you up to this point and then we can jump right into the project from there. So wait, let me okay. let me make sure I understand this question before they go ahead and answer. Do you want do you want something about influence on what they're doing for their thesis yeah. or architecture in general? Right. So okay. Um, so what your your thesis title is Spaces of Justice and it's and it kind of goes over. Uh, sort of the social impacts of of how maybe not that we imprison people, but how we imprison people because we don't trust other options in terms of how they might be out and about in the community or, or uh, rehabilitated outside of prison, um, which, you know, and, and I think it's a really interesting topic. And to me or someone like, you know, to us here, it's like, you know, it's an edge of architecture, but still architectural in the sense that you're taking a space oriented approach to it. But like, you know, it's not like object oriented or artifact oriented in the sense that how many architectural theses are. So I think, I, I don't know, I, I want to know, I guess, here where you where you're coming from in terms of what are your influences or what has led to this to what has led you to this point in architecture where you feel like you'd rather tackle this, maybe more political or socially oriented. Yeah, well, we really wanted to work on um, something systemic for our architectural thesis because we recognize that architecture has a huge impact on other things like policy and economics and the issue of mass incarceration particularly, um, which is very political. But we see a lot of architects, planners, designers divided on this issue, like whether you boycott designing these spaces completely because you don't agree with the issue or if it's your responsibility to take on the project and to design it as humanely or as best as you can because there's always going to be someone else who will 
design it regardless. We're going to do it worse. <laughs> exactly. And I think we we started initially with the question of what is what is architecture's role in in reducing mass incarceration, and it's a very it's a very complicated question because mass incarceration is a result of so many things, uh, design being one of them, but even more so, it's economics and politics and policies and media and histories of discrimination. So a large part of the work we did was to figure out where architecture can have an impact and make positive change as opposed to being just a, an observer of this condition. Mm-hmm. But it was, was, it, was it the that latter part that you're talking about where it's, it's policy and economics and, and putting architecture forward in terms of that and not being an observer that is that what drove you to pick mass incarceration is like or is it more of like you saw mass incarceration as a problem and then took steps from there we definitely saw it as a spatial problem with a lot of social implications so the traditional way um, now is to design a prison way outside of the city either at the edge of the urban area or in the middle of nowhere in some rural context to separate out these people who we deem are bad Um, But when you do that, you make it hard for their family members and their friends to visit them. And those are the strong social network they need to probably help them um, come back from the crime that they did or improve their place in society. And so we're breaking up those important social networks. Yeah, I guess, I mean, what I was thinking while you are saying that, and like just putting it on the edge or periphery, it almost inherently stigmatizes it. Um, and so even, I guess, even the location alone, I think that was what you guys really get into a lot with the, with the thesis is that location is, you know, paramount to, to how, to how people interact with it. And I think that's, that's a pretty interesting, uh, observation. I think it's an initial, initial design decision that has a lot of implications. Um, we were working in the Boston context as, as a case study location and, in Boston, for example, the, the Community Correction Center is directly adjacent to the Suffolk County, which is the county Boston is in, um, county jail, and which, is, which both are at the intersection of, of a major interstate and a highway, which right, right there that tells you that these two institutions, which should have very different goals, are spatially treated almost identically in terms of the relationship to the city. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a, a key point that we wanted to highlight in um, thinking of a different design alternative to a community correction system is its physical location, first and foremost. Hmm. Okay. Was that, was that what you just mentioned? Was that something you saw like early on in the project that was sort of served as an impetus? Or I guess getting back to that core question that Chris, Chris was asking, was was there one specific thing that really drove this from the beginning that you sort of saw and felt a need? Or I guess, was, was there anything that, that really drove that, right. uh, that idea in the beginning? Right. Or, or I guess maybe even more simply, how did you, like, you're, we're, I guess we're talking about all these things in terms of like, oh, there's this, this big problem that architecture is kind of like, in a certain extent, skirting around or placing on the periphery when it's really a core 
function in the way we persecute people or rehabilitate people, hopefully, and and make them useful to society. But like, how did you how did you choose this in the first place? Because there were a lot of a lot of different things that you could have chosen that are on the edge. And, and, you know, Christian's question of like, is this something that you saw early on? Is this something that like, like, where did this come from? I guess it's my question. What led to that? Um, It's definitely a relevant issue now. I think seeing things like New York's Rikers Island closing and what to do with that population in a city as dense as New York and rehabilitate them. You know, at first it started as an interest, a possibility, like this could be a thesis. And then once we started researching, we were discovering all these nuances in how these spaces are designed and where these people are expected to go or where they can or can't live, who they can or can't interact with. And so it became an entire project from there. And I think there was a, I think early on in the research, it was very exploratory in terms of, we didn't know necessarily what our design proposal would be or fit. Um, But there was a moment when we were digging through research reports that um, there's a report published by a research think tank called Mass Inc. uh, this this past summer that talks about judges' lack of faith in the community correction system, specifically in Boston. And that I believe 85% of people that are eligible for community corrections are instead sent to prisons because of this lack of faith. And that is is a failure of architecture, and it's, it's an opportunity for, for architecture to create an institutional identity that the community can, can have faith in, that would, that would create a positive uh, alternative to, to prison. Yeah, like we're sending people to prison because there isn't a place for them in the community to better rehabilitate themselves or where we could help them. And so we're just sending them to the extremes, which is unnecessary. Okay, so something that caught my attention there. So I, I, I want to ask two questions here. The first one is, I think, this sort of what we had just talked about kind of encompasses the first portion of maybe some of the research, at least as it was presented to me or how I read it. Um, and, and I guess maybe this is a good way to, or a good time to just kind of jump into what you did and or some of the findings that you had and then kind of what you did, maybe just go over the project quickly. Um, and then maybe the other thing that caught my attention about what you just said was, James, you had brought up that it was a failure of architecture, but it was interesting because you had talked about that in the context of a bunch of social issues in terms of rehabilitation and people not being rehabilitated into their community. And it, it jumps at me that it's not a building, right? Generally speaking, it's, it's sort of a policy thing, but you had also just said it was a failure of architecture. So I think maybe that's a good way to maybe transition from what you did into like, why is it a failure of architecture? And then how did you solve that? And then we can maybe discuss the project further from there. So what we, um, in finding that there's all this mass incarceration and there's a system for having people on probation or parole where they can stay in their community and still hold a job, but there is no place for these people in community corrections like probation and parole. And so we proposed this alternative, um, which, was programmed as a vocational school and a restorative justice center. So the restorative justice was first to get at ideology and change how we as a society respond to crimes. And then the vocational school aspect was to create this place for rehabilitation 
that also addresses the core challenges that people who offend usually have, which is, you know, poverty, lack of education or employment. And I think um, in addition to it being a vocational school, a core programmatic element was a public-facing side to the design that engages those in the Community Corrections Center, but also the general public as the designs are cited within uh, the community that we are working in within Roxbury. And that, that public part and the interface between the public and those who would otherwise be isolated um, is a really important moment of creating opportunities for interactions and shared space um, that, that currently don't exist. Like if prisons and the way they're designed is a physical manifestation and aesthetic of safety, like we make them look like these impenetrable fortresses, partially for the public to believe like, oh, that's really keeping someone in. So how can we design a place that looks and is um, like it's helping people and giving opportunities for people to be better members of society? We don't have a place for that, like that place like that yet right so so really the what from what i understand it you're reacting to in a certain extent putting putting the incarcerated people out on the fringes of society but also to the fact that you know we're not sort of giving them a chance in society and just kind of defaulting to incarcerating them and then the response is to try and how do we educate them but also how do we kind of make them more public facing instead of secluding them or shunning them off from society is that, is that sort of understood right? Yeah. If you have someone who's committed theft, um, they haven't necessarily hurt anyone. They might be sent to prison where they can't hold a job, so they're going to be even more impoverished, which is probably why they started thieving in the first place. So instead, we can let them stay in the community and address their needs by helping them get a job and thereby reduce the crime rate, perhaps, and also save them from the cycle of incarceration. So maybe from here we can jump into like, so what, what were the design proposals? I guess it's hard to say this without sort of the graphic representation that we're so used to as architecture students. But, you know, there were, there were two solutions, Olivia's solution, or I don't know how you split up exactly the work, but Olivia, it seemed like you, you have more of a megaform kind of, I don't know if that's the right term for it, uh, solution. And James is more of a distributed uh, distributed solution throughout the community. I, I guess I'd like to hear a little bit more about those decisions, how, how you came about to those decisions, and then um, we can have a prolonged discussion from there. And to add to that, I also kind of want to know generally as you, as you discuss this, I would assume, like my, my base assumption, and maybe you can just confirm this quickly or not, is that you know you have you have these two different um, the idea of the central versus like the distributed? Um, my assumption was that those would kind of work together in concert uh, as opposed to being alternatives, uh, you know, working on their own. But basic question that I had for the purposes of the thesis, I think we ended up kind of each taking on one solution and keeping them separate, sort of two people, two projects. Um, but we both thought about them together and sort of believe in the ideas that they propose. So the one consolidated central model was situated at the sort of downtown civic center of the neighborhood where there's the police station and the public library and the courthouse and all of these 
existing services. And so the consolidated model puts in yet another institution among these, hopefully to create a connection between all these and also hopefully change the system from within. I was going to ask you, because um, uh, people listening don't necessarily have the document, the really nice document that you guys put together in front of them. Uh, but what uh, what programmatic elements specifically were included in that central model? Right. So both both models um, have a vocational school, which involves classrooms and workshops for training, say in woodworking or whatnot. There is also a housing component because that's a difficult issue for people who have been incarcerated. They either can't live in their existing homes um, for various reasons. Um, there's also a commercial or public front to create a space where there would be more interaction between the general public and the offenders and also just public space in general for everyone. So creating as many spaces where populations could mix. And the, the second proposal, as you mentioned, was a more distributed scheme. Um, which was located in a residential part of the neighborhood that is much lower density to the, to the urban core and is, also has a significant number of vacant lots. Um, so the proposal was to use existing publicly owned vacant lots and repurpose them into um, spaces for the community corrections center. So the, the program that, that Olivia was mentioning in this case was broken into individual buildings, like a single classroom on one plot, a single workshop on another, and each each space uh, was paired with some type of public amenity. Um, so a classroom might be with a, a playground or a, or a gym, and a workshop might be paired with a commercial furniture store. Um, so there's a curated set of uh, interactions with each with each space. And then a key space in all of this is the Restorative Justice Center, which in terms of square footage was small compared to the other programs. Um, but it's the room where offenders and victims come together to talk about the crime that was done and talk about how they can heal from the crime. And so this is a space that pushes the new ideology of restorative justice and how communities deal with crimes. So it's not a third party, the judge, incarcerating someone and determining the punishment, but the parties who are involved in the crime discussing how it can be repaired <laughs> and how the community can move on. But that was present in both that was like both solutions had that. Uh, where, yeah. does, where does that uh, method or ideology in terms of, uh, where does that stem from? Is it like that, is there like a really brief history you can give on that? Like where that originated? If, if it's with you guys or if, if it's sort of from? It's definitely it's, not from yeah, us. <laughs> um, I, think, I think it has, uh, there's a very long history have to reference our writing it, to be for sure, but I think it has origins thousands of years ago in indigenous communities. Okay. Leave in Africa, I think formally as an ideology, it became more well known. It appeared in Canada before it did in the US, <laughs> uh, which <laughs> didn't happen, I think, until the 1980s. There's an, there's an architect, Diana Van Buren, who has been a very large advocate of restorative justice, uh, working out of, out of Oakland and a key precedent for our work, um, who is really pushing to bring that restorative justice ideology to the foreground of this discussion. That's Taking all. in a lot of 
schools where I guess you see more the value of how to how to come out of conflict when you have students where you can't you know just suspend the student something uh, something as simple as bullying uses this the same uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. of restorative justice as as what we're, we're that, talking about. that's interesting that it's an architect who you say is has pushed this or, or as well, one of the people who's pushed it architecture oh it's okay a problem though right oh yeah. yeah yeah it's a programmatic problem but okay so where I wanted to go with that was, I don't know, it seems like over the years, especially uh, with the, sort of the fall of modernism, the, the sort of this, this I don't know, postmodern kind of society, it seems like we're kind of going towards or have been going towards more of a, know, what, object-oriented or just sort of aesthetic movement. Or it, There's like a disillusionment with like coming up with these great solutions with society for architecture. I don't know, maybe maybe you see it differently, but that's that's kind of how I've... I've seen it, but so I, the, the reason I asked that is, or bring this up is I think it's really interesting that you've come up with sort of the centralized, decentralized solution. I'm wondering how, how it is that you, is that just because they're on opposite ends of the spectrum that you've pulled that together? Um, is that in reaction to anything, or is it just sort of your individual interests to, to go with the centralized or more decentralized? Well, I also, I also think it's important i don't know i think i think solution is is perhaps the wrong word because uh, these are very much proposals of okay. of ideas and proposed solutions us believe that that architecture can um, can solve something like mass incarceration it's part of part of a, a movement but um i think to your question what was the question again? It's like, okay, so the first part, I think, I, I kind of lost the question in talking myself in circles there, but the first part is like, where did, where did, I guess, my interest is there's such different solutions in that one is central, one is decentralized, and like, was that a, a was that a specific decision be, to go at it from two opposite ends of the spectrum, or was that sort of your each, your own personal biases uh, towards the, uh, towards, I don't know, buildings in general, or? Where did that come from? It came out of actually our analysis of the urban context and the site. And so looking in the neighborhood, Roxbury and Boston that we chose, um, we saw two different urban conditions. One was that it has a really strong civic center um, where all the core public institutions were right by each other, including the public defenders, the municipal court, the police station, which was a brand new um, building recently and a lot of space among all these and then the other was all of the small vacant lots in the residential neighborhood and so we saw those as opportunities to um, take advantage of what was there while also filling in what was missing with our project it was also very intentional that we proposed two very different architectural designs um, so that it's it's understood that there even even though it could be an architectural model it's a model that is adapted to its specific urban conditions um, both of our, our projects shared similar design values um, but the way that they physically manifest themselves depends on the specifics of the context, even if it's in the same neighborhood um, that we were designing in, the areas are, are very different and require different different strategies. Nice, that's a better answer than I was kind of expecting. Not not nothing against you. I was 
Or at least well, where I, my I, question was leading. No, I, I, that was great. Well, I mean, to tie it back to your initial question, is disillusionment, I'm reading the outlines directly here, disillusionment with the ability of quote-unquote architecture and to solve problems. Maybe maybe it's just not worded right because, you know, as as we discussed with their proposals, it's 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 about a system. It's about take you know, using using the research to define a certain set of programmatic elements that are necessary as well as their location um, within certain areas to help, you know, deal with or mitigate problems. So if you if we think about that question when you know, talking about the, the fall of modernism or whatever, which maybe was too focused on form. I guess my question to you guys is how important it seems from the reading of the research and um, your 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 systematic approach. It almost seems like the programmatic elements of this is more important than the architecture itself. To uh, to both of you, maybe um, and. Maybe maybe the problem is is that you know architecture of architecture, which is you know, for talking about craft and material and all that, you know, it, it plays a role. But you know, it almost seems like you feel that the program is much more important here. Or, or the arrangement you... of program. Pardon? Or the arrangement of program. Yeah, yeah, and the location of it, adjacencies and so forth. But because um, I mean, the the proposals that you guys showed were were nice. But I mean, not like hugely developed, like you know, in, in terms of detail and everything. But I mean, obviously that was conscious. Was that was that part of time, or is that part of um, decision that you know we want this to be focused more as like a model for what the community could take and move forward with? And you know, whoever whatever architect does it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, we definitely saw it more as a prototype, um, and you know, neither of us are huge formalists, which is obviously why we took on this kind of issue for our project. Um, and I think it was to say that architecture's ability to solve problems is not through the aesthetics. Like you're not going to solve something by having um, something of concrete or something in this form, but it can start to address problems by creating a place for X, Y, and Z, or right. creating new adjacencies like a public space along with um, offenders in the community and what that looks like can help or hurt that relationship. That's sort of your design goals and how well you execute, but there are many architectural solutions within that. Right. right. And I, I also think that as we were developing the thesis initially, there's a, there's a lot of adjacent research out there that deals with the effects of things like materials and colors inside rehabilitative spaces and that's a direction that that we we could have focused on um, or someone else um, could focus on in the future but it wasn't wasn't the focus of of our research um, and sort of out slightly outside of the scope of what we wanted to do although it is it is very important we were we were more interested in the systemic aspects of the challenge yeah it's almost like I don't know something that Christian had brought up earlier kind of struck me as um, what you said, the dissolution of architecture, but in solving these problems, but is it really kind of more about the disillusionment illusionment of architects solving these problems? Cause they feel like <laughs> they can't have a hand in the solution, but maybe it's, it's, they're just looking at it wrong. And they're so used to 
the artifact or the object as the solution as opposed to trying to propose something that's a little more program based or higher up I don't know Maybe, or yeah um, I think I mean I think a big sort of overall point in terms of the architect is simply bringing the architects to the table that architects can't be a part of the solution if they're not present in the discussion with all of the other relevant disciplines that are that are addressing something like mass incarceration and that for even there to be a chance of architects making a difference they have to be present in the first place um, mm-hmm. yeah. just creating that dialogue um, and doing things like this podcast and, and creating the research in, a, in the first place is, is part of that um, right. objective well, I wonder, though, if, if because a lot of what you're talking about is, is programmatic, it's social, it's economic policy oriented, and, and it is spatial. I guess everything is spatial in terms of I'm kind of adjacent to you in a room. Um, but is it, is, it, is it a priorities thing? It's part of, I think, what Christian, one of Christian's questions earlier was, you know, you're taking, you're taking a lot of time to produce programmatic arrangements, um, produce... Uh, thoughtfulness about you know who's going to go where and, and some of the feelings and, and policies and things that go into how you decentralize or how you place these uh, I don't know interventions on a site but it seems like regardless of of whether it's just because you didn't want to touch the scale of architecture or not it was much more of a priority on a priority on and on the public or the people or the people you were touching as opposed to a priority on the actual built product. Um, I think there are still considerations though in the quality of the architecture and the um, elements we include and the humanity of it. Like we didn't want to just create a place that fulfills our programmatic ideas, but as also gives dignity to the people using them. So there, these classrooms we created are meant to be well-lit, high-quality classrooms, easily accessible, and not just a classroom. Okay. Yeah, I think while there, while there may not be the like, clarity of architectural details, uh, that doesn't suggest that the, the intentions of the architectural design and its overall material and feel and sort of spatial qualities isn't there uh, yeah no it's definitely it's, and those are some of the things that that are a bit more difficult to to talk about without having having the <laughs> right the graphic material present but the video podcast <laughs> it is important, so i don't, I don't I think those are a thing actually yeah well uh, to a certain extent I guess those are sort of a pre- those are sort of implied right that the quality of the architecture the quality of the details you kind of hope that the architect you hire does that I, I would at least in my mind that's sort of implied in the fact that you hired an architect is they're going to craft it well maybe that's not always the case but no it's <laughs> <laughs> sort of an impl- right but it's sort of an implication in my mind that you're going to just make a nice space and then and then and then you're going to build on top of that with something nice uh, yeah i have but i think just to sort of finish that thought um we were, we were talking a lot about the restorative justice space earlier and how, how important that is sort of overall in the concept of the project. And um, like if you look at either of those spaces in the two proposals, the, the spatial arrangement and 
sort of democracy of the space is very considered. Um, they're both circular rooms with um, equal sort of windows and many more exits than you would have or is required by law um, to give people that are in it a, say, a, a sort of sense of, of comfort um, where might not be present in, in other types of square rooms. And that doesn't, I guess I don't even know reading into that, like you, you take the hierarchy out of that space when you do that, right? So the, the offender versus quote unquote, victim in that case, um, you know, you come to sit at a table and you're on both sides of the same room, which isn't, I, didn't, I haven't even thought about that before, but as you were describing it, so I was thinking it's really interesting. Yeah, that it got me thinking about it, the fact that you have them the same in both proposals. Like, is that sort of, or it seems like you prioritized certain areas over, or you went in and designed certain areas over others. But it got me thinking about another conversation we've had on and off over the years. Um, I'm I'm sort of able to put it into more architectural terms now. I started reading this book, Architectural Intelligences. Really fascinating. Um, talked about this guy, uh, what Christopher Alexander and his pattern languages, but kind of your 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 circular room with many exits sort of reminded me of this pattern language idea of of having these sort of repeatable elements and using them in different ways. Um, but I guess where I was going with that was it was interesting to me, or it struck me that you have these spaces like the restorative justice room where you've sort of thought out these programmatic elements and sort of modularize them in a way and in, in a way and saying like no matter what the architecture of the building is you have these certain aspects that are sort of expected in in these spaces and and to me that's that's interesting because it's sort of a roadmap for architects to like go about and and say that but it's also done in this really well-researched way of or of, of saying that this is kind of this is good for this kind of space and this is good for this kind of set of people and we should do that for our architecture um, I don't know where I'm going with that thought but I thought that was that was pretty cool well and, and ideas like that are built on precedent research and people that have been working in these areas for a long time and um, have studied these detailed nuances um, and their effects maybe these are the meta discussions that come out of having done a joint thesis like these questions of what is the appropriate architectural response and the aesthetics where clearly you have two people designing with the same program but you get very different projects out of it but then there are also shared ideas because we talk to each other the whole time and some things we firmly agreed on and those still showed up in both projects yeah and and that's something what I was thinking about just now is that's something I kind of, I was thinking about like how do I how do I do that professionally right like in my day job do we do that because this conversation is so much more interesting to many extents than like what I do at work which is I don't know not not anything against work but um, I don't know it, it seems like it's it's so codified in a way of like what the program is but in a sense that's kind of what you're doing but I wonder if like how you're doing it is somewhat different or more interesting in a way than, than how, how a traditional, like, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. How much time did you spend on research? 
Yeah, how much time? Did, yeah. How much time did you spend on research? What was in this project? That's his question. Probably, well, let's say like half research, half design, but maybe ideally we'd have way more design. Okay, yeah, that's what's interesting. Projects. That's what's yeah, interesting. Really okay, why do you why do you say that? I'm curious about that. Why do you say ideally you'd have more design than research? Well, I think for the research, like especially once you get into it, like you learn more and you want to learn more and you dig deeper and the research, let's say, is more real. Like we're pulling out real issues and trying to understand them. And then the design part comes from our distillation of all that research. Um, but you can iterate over and over again, design again, and you know, then it's the end of the semester. So it also it also wasn't I don't think that clear of a binary for us. Um, one of the driving questions throughout the whole process is that we always asked ourselves, what is architecture's role in this? What what can architecture do? And even if we didn't start making floor plans week one, we were always thinking about design throughout the research process. They were never separated so um, distinctly from one another. Right. But what's so different, though, is like, it, in some ways, I'm sort of jealous of you guys for being able to kind of not feel bad about putting in this much, this much research into what you're doing um, and to be able to say we're going to spend equal amounts of time on research as we are going to spend on design or on actual architecture um, just because, you know, sitting at work when I'm at my desk, I, in some ways I feel kind of bad reading articles which could kind of, you know, count as research in a way um, while I'm designing because I feel like I have to be drawing, I have to be iterating through designs or I have to be uh, working on something that uh, you know is maybe more tangibly billable um, so then I guess when I, I hear you say oh maybe we should have more time on design right I'm not I don't want to say anything against you saying that as much as I'm 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 wondering is that my question with that is is that sort of something that's sort of been ingrained in our minds throughout school that we just kind of have to be designing we have to be drawing things when in reality is it okay that we can be spending equal amounts of time and research and design and not necessarily have to be drawing the whole time? Well, I think hopefully you'd imagine for everything you research, there's multiple things you could try to design in light of the thing that you've discovered. So in that way, it would be imbalanced, like one fact for every couple iterations to hit on that. but. Course, the time it takes to do one or the other, you can't really, it's hard to count. Right. Yeah, I mean, the design research balance, um, it also depends on the particular topic. And we were both entering this thesis um, perhaps with not as much background knowledge about the history of mass incarcerations and its effects um, as some other people. So it required a significant amount of sort of literature review and ground level research um, to familiarize, familiarize ourselves with this, with this area. And if you had an architect coming in to design um, a prison or any space of justice, you would expect 
that level of dedication from anyone. Um, otherwise, I don't know. They're not. They're not bringing a. Okay, you you're not doing your due diligence unless you're doing that. You would think, but I mean, different than if you were designing like I don't know a pavilion in a park. It's just, right. it's just. It's a pavilion in a park. Yeah. I mean, it also helps that it's a thesis, I suppose. Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> but like. Um, but I mean, to say that you should approach every project in a similar manner is not necessarily a bad thing either. I think. Right, and uh, it seems like there's to me. Right, you bring up this idea that it's it's a good thing that's a thesis, or, or it's okay, it's okay or expected because it's a thesis. But so many of these architecture projects, maybe I don't know what it's like in MIT, but it seems like in a lot of schools, the thesis project is I'm just going to produce another building and I'm just going to do it better than I did before because it's my thesis and I'm going to do a little more digging into it or flesh it out more because it's my thesis and I get two semesters instead of one semester to design this building. Um, but like that's just kind of this idea that the building itself is this research project. Like it is a research project in and of itself because it's a building. But that's like everything we do professionally and maybe it's because you bring up the idea of, of we we've done it before so we don't have to do research but then you do a thesis where a building is your research so kind of i don't know maybe it disproves itself i don't know that's too random well, that, that brings up a question i wanted to ask um and kind of maybe tie it back a little for for uh, james and olivia blake um which is and and they kind of sparked when you said that, so I I, I kind of wonder where this is going to go. But the the notion you guys took the systematic approach, which you know was kind of this program first, and then and then you're going through and figuring out the architecture and the research help define what that program is going to be, as well as you know, architectural details and so forth. But is that something, having not been able to do a thesis at at U of I, um, have you know, Chris and I both have very little exposure to what a, what a thesis might actually look like. Um, and I imagine you guys might have some idea of what thesis, theses, I don't know, whatever the word is, that come out of uh, MIT, for example. Uh, you know, is is there more of a tendency um, for a systematic approach? Is is it kind of just all over the board? Is, is there like a trend that you guys are seeing at the school, at least, in terms of like approach to projects in, in that way um you know if if the if it's trending towards a systematic programmatic idea then maybe maybe that says something good about the future of the practice but you know mit i would say it's more all over the board but then again our program is so small it's like 25 students oh, okay um so i wouldn't say that this small sample size is leading the practice, although we have few more leaders in the practice. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and MIT is very free, so people can take on projects just about fabrication and they just make prototypes and objects, or it could be extremely theoretical, um, it could be adaptive reuse, it could be a totally new project, it could be entirely sort of fantastical or, you yeah, know, like space really architecture. Reflective of each student's interests. And, okay. and that's the right, the reason that Olivia and I, we collaborated in the first place is because we had, we had similar interests about 
architecture and what we think its role could be. Um, mm. yeah. And um, there was another joint thesis our year, and I think there there's a few in the, the year below us, so it's an exciting um, trend that started as well as the, oh. the collaborative model, at least at MIT. Perhaps it's been um, done at other, other schools for, for a long time. Hopefully the diversity speaks to maybe architects and architecture's role in other fields. Like we fit in sustainability, but also policy and politics and right. engineering. Yeah. Well, it'd be fun to take a, take a pulse of that or take a survey of that across all the other schools. It, it seemed like um, from what I saw at, when I was visiting Cincinnati and what they were doing is a lot of maybe more building oriented or traditional architecture oriented stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe every program's different, so who knows? Um, okay, so w with that in mind, I, I want to get into. It. There are a couple of questions that I don't want to uh, miss out on before we stop, and we're going. We're already pretty deep into this. So um, first, <laughs> to say the least. Well, let's just keep going. Yeah. Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't know how much time you guys have, um, but there are a couple things I want to touch on. Um, so I guess one thing is having done a really research-heavy thesis, a really research-heavy project that has at least um, at, to some degree translated into architecture, what, what, did you, what, what did you find was really difficult and, and maybe strategies for improving that about like integrating data or integrating research into an actual architecture, right? Because I think that's something that a lot of people have issue or trouble with is research is great. You can find a lot of data, but how do you make data or information architecture? Translation. Maybe, maybe there's this misunderstood idea that the data equals something in design, that there's maybe a one-to-one -one translation. Form. Yeah, that, you know, this data means we should do this. Um, but there's still a lot of interpretation and... Yeah. I think I think that the role of data in our thesis more related to proving its viability in like a need for this new architectural proposal. Um, I think the design itself, as we we sort of touched on earlier, there could be a lot of different versions of it, but um, from an economic perspective. Um, we haven't talked about justice rein reinvestment at all, but it's another guiding ideology of the project is that um, mass incarceration is expensive. Um, it's expensive to maintain, and the community correction system is a much more economically viable alternative. Um, and even from just the economics perspective, um, which is obviously a data-heavy one that... Um, we think this architecture could could have a huge impact. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was was just viability. This is this this should happen because we've proved that it's an issue and it's worth well, it's investing a, in. Justice reinvestment is um, sort of a the idea of taking money that is currently invested in the incarceration system and then the money that is saved from an alternative and reinvesting that into something like education that can um, can get to the core issues that cause mass incarceration in the first place, right. as opposed to addressing 
only the results of mass incarceration. Right. Um, it's trying to trying to break that cycle. So the economics perspective is is an important one. Yeah. It's like using the data to support our design decisions. Like it costs seventy thousand a year to incarcerate someone. If we didn't incarcerate them, we could use all that money to educate them and build a facility for it. Um, and there are cases where, for example, I think research says that blue is a soothing color or something. Does that mean we make all our buildings blue? No. But if you do choose to make it blue and that matches your design intent, that could be something you lean on. Yeah. Okay. No, that, I guess in a way, that's kind of not the answer I was hoping for. But at the same time, it makes a lot of sense. Um. Well, yeah, suggesting <laughs> that just identifying the, uh, where the opportunities lie yeah. or make, verifying the hypothesis of where those lie right. in the first place. Right. No, I was, I was sort of hoping that there was something beyond verifying that this hypothesis or this opportunity is worthwhile in investing, right? Like, what did you want to hear? I don't, I don't know. I wanted to hear that. <laughs> no, I wanted to hear that. Uh, I, I guess I was kind of hoping to hear that there was some way in which the actual information itself translated into architectural decisions beyond it's worth, it's worth investigating a building, right? Because we're doing it wrong and we need to, we need to try and iterate through this. Right. Um, well, I think, I think there was a lot of sort of urban level analysis and data that did translate into uh, architectural decision makings, architectural decision making, um, even if it is still from an economic perspective. Which but, is fine. Everything's uh, from an uh, economic like perspective the, if you dig into it. The, the, the residential, the distributed model was at the border between Roxbury and an adjacent neighborhood, Jamaica Plain, um, which are very different. Um, in terms of, well, in terms of many, many different factors, but one is, is real estate value. And the, the neighborhoods are divided by um, a, a, major, a major park, a major road, and a major train line. And architecture can also be infrastructural on the urban scale. And understanding that there is an economic divide um, and that a project can potentially bridge those those differences um, and bring some of the economic prosperity of one neighborhood to another um, I think is is one way of translating urban level data to um, architectural urban scale design mm-hmm. yeah it, I also I, I agree because like that's that's sort of at one scale and then they talked about you know the different programmatic elements that were included and you know that I don't think they just pulled that out of thin air. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then even the, the notion that James was talking about with the, you know, the circular. I'm, I got my hands here making a circle, not that anyone can see that. But, uh, the circular, the circular room, and and the, the, you know, the addition of, you know, a number of exits or, you know, entries, I guess, um, and and the role that played. So, I mean, I don't. Is the translation like you just have to draw a diagram and show an arrow, and then it's a one-to-one translation? Is like, is that like, is it? Can it just be that literal? Um, and that's all you really. I mean, even even if like obviously that's not what's happening, right? There's other influencers, but 
I mean, if you just say that's what it is, like this, this was the primary influence for why this decision was made, is that good enough? Yeah, there are also firms, I think, that are trying to do the reverse, where they make design and then build data from that. So by saying, we made X, Y, and Z design decisions, now we've pulled this data from how people use it or how much mm -hmm. money it's generated. Oh, okay. Right, the WeWork model. Yeah, so it's another way of looking at how design and data happen. And maybe yeah. when there's enough Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh, to that kind of analysis, we'll have a database for a more one-to-one -one database for those decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, it, you see that have more effects in building typologies like hospitals, right? Um, right. And the way prisons are designed now, where they're he heavily, heavily codified. Um, yeah. And it takes a long time to change policy and building codes, and changes like that could happen as a result of very thorough post-occupancy studies over a number of years. Um, so that that is, that's, like Olivia said, sort of the, the other way of looking at it. Yeah, and I hope, hopefully maybe we don't want everything to be super codified, but yeah. What were you going to say, Christian? Yeah, I hire a bunch of interns to do some post-occupancy work on your stuff anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully there's enough of a, of a interconnection between beginning and or like front-end research and back-end research or, or however you want to define that where they kind of inform each other. But that, that's another struggle of architecture that I think, I don't know, that's kind of just inherent to it being a physical thing that it's hard to do a little bit of both sometimes. You can't have them inform each other as well. Um. Okay, the other thing I wanted to touch on, since we're, we're you know, we're closing in on an hour now, um, so maybe we'll do this and finish up soon after. So there are two other things, um, and and maybe there are more. Okay, I'll ask. Yes. <laughs> so what? Going back to this and and looking at the research and looking at your proposals. Um, was do you feel like your project was successful, um, or like what does a project like this where to a certain extent, it's so policy economic based, and it's hard to really test it. Like, how do you how do you define success in a project like this? What what does that look like? I think the conversations that came out of our thesis review were could be a marker of our success. I think people talking about issues that you rarely hear about in an architecture review, um, while commenting on the design, like. How the, how the responses um, address the issues and other ways that they could. Um, having yeah. a podcast about it. We are having a podcast about <laughs> it. The like the ripple effects of of doing work that affects others around you, whether it's the thesis committee or the people that or watching us present the thesis or the people that listen to the podcast or the people that three years from now are doing something related and Google search it and happen to stumble on our thesis and use it as a reference like we did with so many other past work. Um, there's so many different ways that a project can can affect. But I think I think you do have, I don't know, it's, it's a good question and it's often very hard to 
find hard metrics for what what success is, especially in an academic project. Right, um, or in, in architecture, I think so often it's the building was built, it's successful, or it made some really cool graphics, it's successful, right? <laughs> it's like, that's not really the point here, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of the point is that what exists now is is very unsuccessful. Right. So simply starting the conversation of alternatives, um, regardless of, I mean, we're still certainly not making claims that our proposal is the the perfect alternative, but um, it's it's part of part I, of a conversation. Yeah, and I obviously one of the biggest successes, I mean, aside from you know the design of the project itself is you know the research that you put in and and the the compelling narrative that it really set up for why why this is a problem and you know it it parallels the um the netflix documentary or i don't know if it's netflix the 13th mm-hmm. very well, obviously um and a lot of this other work that's been done you know i just genie gang's work which you guys referenced as well yeah. uh, and so i think it's it's clear that it's sort of an under considered um topic right now um, because it's it's slightly taboo, I suppose. Well, it, it, I think under underdeveloped or underreferenced topic in architecture as a whole is anything that's sort of political like this. It, it seems like it's so often, and maybe it's just me being jaded, but it seems like it's so often. Oh, we're just going to make a building because someone asked us to make a building, and and maybe maybe it's controversial like a prison, and we don't do prisons. But other than that, we're just going to make a building because someone asked us to, right? And, I don't know if it's sort of this reaction to Pruitt Igo getting torn down and, and projects like that just being abject failures that we don't want to kind of touch that anymore and we want to just focus on doing a building. But I don't know. I I, I find it refreshing that both of you talked about this because it's it I don't know, it's great that it's not necessarily just about the building anymore. Yes, it's a success that no one shut us down and no one said we can't do this i mean they were skeptical even our advisor was skeptical oh. but um we were able to do it that's kind of surprising i mean where did that skepticism come from do you know um i think it goes back to the you know what is architecture's role in this and is it an architectural project even um mm-hmm. but we can make it an architectural project. <laughs> well, there, like, there's a clear distinction. Like, we had no intention of designing a prison. Um, we didn't design a prison, um, but there is a, a large history of architects and architectural theses that address prison design. Um, right. From from the, the Panopticon onward, but that was that was never the goal of the project. Um, I mean, the idea was was really quite the opposite. Was to design an alternative to that. Right. It's so optimistic. What you've what you've done is so optimistic compared to you know kind of the language you started off with in the beginning about it's a prison. You know, prisons are out in the edge. People are secluded. Right. But like the graphics and and and, and the salute, the language in the proposal is so much more optimistic. I think it's it's nice. Yeah. Um, it's good to see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and maybe it shows the the bias of our podcast. But I'm I'm frankly kind of shocked that anyone would put any resistance towards this kind of project. I think it's awesome. Well, yeah, it's not techno optimism this time, at least. No, no, it's, it's socio political. Um, yeah, hopefully, I don't know. Hopefully, we have more 
political discussions in architecture moving forward. Uh, maybe it'll be forced onto us with some of the things that have come up recently with famous architects. Who knows? I don't think we need. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we <laughs> open that can of worms. No, we don't. But yes. yeah, no. Um, anything else we want to bring up? And then, what are you guys up to? Oh yeah, I'm curious about that. Yeah. What's Good. next? start my very first job next monday oh exciting <laughs> um and i'm still i'm still still searching um right. working working for a professor uh here at mit while i pursue full-time full-time opportunities all right you, uh, olivia are you will you be with an architecture firm yeah i'll be at goody clancy here in boston Okay. I'm going to be honest, I've never heard of them. Yeah, okay. How many architecture? There's like, we talk about 12 architecture firms and that's it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm fairly certain you've never heard of where I work anyway. So that was not a slight in the mean, the slightest, but yeah. All right. I would say it's been reassuring. Um, I've obviously talked about our thesis project in interviews a lot and it's been well received everywhere, oh. even if it's not the kind of work that firms do, but maybe everyone, at least somewhere in their minds, has an aspiration for architecture to do these things, so. Yeah. That's encouraging. Uh, yeah, that's great, honestly. Yeah, I mean, if I only... Think... Go ahead. I think, I think she's right. Like, everyone sort of... Not everyone. Let's most probably have those aspirations. Right. You know, um, you know, going into architecture school and then continuing onwards, um, you know, how that how that moves forward into practice. That's that's always right. How job. do you make money doing this? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really figured out how to make money doing architecture in general. Yeah. Seriously, you know, it's not a it's not a great business model as it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Gosh, that would be a great discussion at some point too. Um, but yeah, congrats on the job and uh, yeah, that's exciting. James, hopefully you find one soon. <laughs> yeah, hopefully yeah, one. We really that's... appreciate you guys, you guys having us on the, the podcast. Yeah, well, yeah. It's if fun. either of you have any other things you want to talk about on a podcast forum, let us know because that would be fantastic. Um, that's, that's good. Yeah, it was it was good to have you on. Was, I think it's a good way to end our break. Sorry, go ahead. Be a peanut gallery for oh. your other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, actually, would be a bad idea. Bad idea. It might, you know, it might not hurt us to have more people talking. That way, we, you know, talk half as less. <laughs> yeah, and and I think our biases are pretty clear at this point, and 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 our biases are fairly similar. So having someone else on <laughs> could be useful. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, well, I think maybe that's it. Yep. For this one then. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Appreciate yeah. it. Guys again. Thanks. Do we have a topic for the next one? I don't want to announce it right now. I feel like it'll change. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, if you listen to this, thanks for listening. Uh, rate us on iTunes or anywhere else. Um, and have a good night. <laughs>